and this is People My Dog Would Like, where I get to speak with interesting people about their game-changing ideas, fresh initiatives and out-of-the-box movements with an eye on the future, a compassionate future at that. Today, my guest is Dr Catherine Ball, also known as the Dame of Drones, an award-winning scientist, author, founder, innovator, entrepreneur, ethics advocate and drone expert. She's one of Australia's leading tech entrepreneurs who is at the helm of a business that now has global reach. Dr. Ball's been awarded Telstra's National and Queensland Businesswoman of the Year for both the corporate and private categories in 2015. She was nominated by the Science and Innovation Forum and the Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering as an innovator of influence at the 2015 Innovation Week. Dr. Ball has won AFR's Boss Magazine Young Executive of the Year in 2015. She's on the Industry Advisory Board at the ANU. She's been nominated as a Westpac's 100 Women of Influence in Innovation in 2016. She's also in the Top 25 Women in Robotics list in 2016. Dr. Ball works tirelessly on using tech as an enabler to better assist humanity and the environment. She's super passionate about how employing drone tech in a very practical human way can have enormous humanitarian reach. She works on initiatives focusing on emergency response events, works tirelessly on cutting edge collaborative initiatives, promoting science entrepreneurship, empowerment, education and training. She's been working with drone tech in remote communities, schools, with citizen scientists, commercially and in scientific research. She's recently started up a number of companies and projects around the use, ethics, education and empowerment of people with the new tech, especially Drones for Good. She's curated Gumption Trigger, a book which has morphed into a cool platform for businesswomen, entrepreneurs and innovators to share their unique stories of vulnerability grit, resilience and determination, which in turn gives women the opportunity to absorb some powerful tips, tricks and advice about getting immovable objects and unstoppable forces working for you and your business ideas. She's co-founder and chief engagement officer of She Flies, a program to encourage girls and women to pursue careers in STEM fields. She's supporting Australia to develop as a world leader in the non-military drone applications or drones for good and was co-creator and technical convener of the world of drone congress which was held last month in brisbane it's the first of its kind in the world to cover all the applications for the use of drone tech catherine has over 18 years experience with various academic administrative business technical and philanthropic roles as you can tell she's a superstar she's about to be a mum for the first time she's a serious Star Wars fan, mm-hmm. and I'm so pleased to have her here today. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Lizzie. I'd like to meet this woman that you've just read this CV out about. She <laughs> sounds pretty good, doesn't she? Uh, do you know what? I know so oh many more God. women that are just <laughs> like that too. Oh but we need to actually embrace these things. I get called a tall poppy every now and then. I really don't mind. In Britain, tall poppy is a massive compliment. But we really, I think, here in Australia, struggle as women to recognize our achievements. So, so there's one thing I can do to one person listening to this podcast today is to embrace your successes and, you know, feel supported. There are a group of women here, you know, across Australia who will do nothing but big you up if you let us know what it is that you're doing. 
I love that you've said that. I agree. I think tall poppy should be something that we all aspire to be, not something that we shy away from. So I'm really pleased that that's, uh, that's how you hold that view. So to start us off, tell us a little bit about your journey. What led you here to Australia? And out of interest, what do you say when someone asks what you do, Catherine? <laughs> it's, um, hmm, it's interesting. It depends who the person is that's asking me the question. I have to try and tailor the answer. Otherwise, it just becomes like elevator pitch. You know, you've got to keep it down to 30 seconds. Um, I like to say that I am trying new things in the world of business and science and uh, that I'm trying to engage and bring along as many people as I can with me whilst having as much fun as I possibly can. I'm an accidental entrepreneur. I really did not mean to do it this way, but the traditional system was just not working for me at all. I was miserable in an office job. Um, and um, yeah, mm. I just had to break out and, and go my own way. In terms of coming to Australia, it, I'm a, an economic refugee, really, if you think about it. I escaped the global financial crisis. I was lucky enough that I have a PhD. You know, I have enough points to get me a visa into Australia. Um, and I, I asked my uh, British company, which was a global company, find me a job. And they, they got me a potential offer in Austin, Texas, a potential offer in London. Then there was a hiring freeze in London because one of the directors was leaving, I think. And so there was just nothing happening. And then Perth, Western Australia, which I'd never wanted to go to, to be honest. I'd, I'd never had any desire or, or dream to go to Western Australia. Um, I wasn't particularly bothered about it. Didn't know anybody there. Um, and when I got the job offer for it, I thought, you know what, I'm 30, I'm single. If I don't do this now, then I never will. And so I jumped. Um, and um, it was a hard landing. It's not easy being an expat. Yeah, right. So Perth was where you started. Perth was where I was for four years uh, for my sins. I love Perth, don't get me wrong. Oh, my God. I'm a Perth girl, so that's fascinating. I'm I'm a a Melbourne girl now, but I was from Perth. Yeah, so my husband's from Perth, so he'd never really been anywhere other than Perth, Rottnest, Phuket, and Bali, Um, (laughs) as one does when one's from WA, right? Absolutely, if you're from uh, Perth. And um, and so I said to him, you know, I'm not staying here for the rest of my life. You know, this is going to be a temporary thing. And so if you're wanting to live in WA for the rest of your life, this isn't going to work. And he was like, no, no, where should we go? Where should we go? So we moved to Brisbane three years ago and we haven't looked back and we, we love Brisbane. Um, Perth, you know, is beautiful. It is. It's a gorgeous place. I've got some great yeah. friends there and I don't mean to slag it off and I don't mean to say anything horrible about it, but it just wasn't the right fit for me. Um, and it wasn't the right yeah. fit for me after about six months of me being there, but it took me another three and a half years for me to actually get in a position to be able to um, move. Leverage yeah. off what you were doing there. Yeah. And ending up and in Brisbane. Brisbane. Yeah. So listen, I've been listening to a few of the um, conversations and, and talks that you've given and I, a couple of things are really fascinating to me, so I'll ask them in, uh, in the episode today. So what do you mean by behaviour-based innovation? I'm really interested in what you mean by that term. Well, you see, I put a call out during the Telstra Awards that I wanted to engage with business psychologists to start looking at how we actually recognise and integrate innovation as something that we already do. I mean, if you look at it, the federal government almost lost the general election off the back of the hashtag innovation boom. If you say to a lot of people, oh, hashtag innovation, innovation, innovator, they they just immediately think of somebody who tinkers around with something in their shed or someone who's writing an app in Silicon Valley or Steve Jobs or somebody who is so far away from their life and any kind of terms of reference they have about themselves that the term innovation, I think, can be completely disempowering. It can be ivory tower snobbery, academic snobbery, you know, oh, innovator, innovator, you know. So I was like, we've got to 
get rid of some of these buzzwords. Words are where everything starts, right? The, the words and how we learn to speak and the words that we label things with is the start of how you have that conversation around the whole thing. So for me, to innovate is to be human. It's the only thing we've ever been any good at as a species is innovating and changing mm. our environment or changing ourselves to fit our environment. And here in Australia, I've been doing it longer than anywhere else on the planet, really. Um, you know, 60 odd thousand years of continuous innovation in our living cultures and in indigenous and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Um, and so mm. it's, it's quite a magic thing innovation but it's part of who we are it's in our dna and so when you say to someone oh how are you innovating what's your innovation policy it immediately becomes a tick box tick sorry tick box exercise or it immediately becomes this thing that someone then suddenly doesn't know enough about or thinks they don't know enough about so it becomes a problem then you have all of this you know consultants offering up innovation this that and the other then you have to have an innovation champion then you have to have a chief innovation officer then you have to have a you know a chief technology officer chief digital officer you have all of these people that are creating roles out of something that actually everybody can do and so for me behavior-based innovation is literally recognizing the skills and the traits we have as natural team workers as natural collaborators as the social animals that we homo sapiens are and actually recognizing that mm. rather than labeling and putting people in boxes um, because as a country we are slipping on the global innovation index we're also slipping on the gender diversity index at the same time. And I actually think they are probably... That is so true. And we need to seriously, if our economy is going to keep growing the way we want it to grow, we want to have superannuation in 30, 40, 50 years' time. We want to have, you know, stable economic growth and, and jobs and people happy and healthcare and stuff. We need to fix this. Um, and it's a problem. So that, I think, is where I was coming yes, from. Yes, and one thing I'm, well, one thing I've, I can see that you're talking about regularly is that team-based innovation and the collaborative efforts that you're always pursuing for that innovation ideal and also you know carrying on the conversation so that's amazing yeah if I always think about it you either compare it to um, a managed forest where all of the trees look the same or you look at the Daintree rainforest where there's a lot of variety which one of those two things do you think is more likely to survive climate change right so yes, diversity exactly. and innovation are two sides of the same coin if you want one, you build the other, and that's all you need to do. And so for me... Um, oh, I just love your metaphors, <laughs> Catherine. They're just amazing. Them, mate. You're just like the metaphor. <laughs> you're, not, you're not really the dame of drones. You're the metaphor queen, sweetheart. I try, this is when you say to me, how do you explain what you do to people? I've had to suddenly start using, you know, metaphors and stories and allegories and, you know, yeah, getting into, getting into being poetic. They're so powerful, though. I think it really does resonate with people when you can use a metaphor to convey what the meaning of what you're trying to achieve I think it's so so much more powerful for people when they're listening Thank to you. you and I think this is actually where a lot of academics and business people become very unstuck in that they don't speak the same language so you've got business academia and um government and all three speak different languages all three have different terms of reference and then you've got us the general public that are looking at all of these things and going, what's everyone working on now what's everyone doing what's the next big thing and it's um I think again it's like when you, well, I've got a PhD in statistics right so I could stand in front of you and write out a massive set of algorithms and a massive set of equations and oh ha aren't I great I'm going to call this a strange word that I thought of once and just create this thing and it's so it's so arrogant to use language that you can't 
allow other people to feel empowered by. If you use language to make other people feel stupid, then you are really not helping anyone. And I remember during my PhD... Well, and language is there for communication, isn't it, ideally? It's about (laughs) communication. You'd like to think, right? Yeah. No, I think people use language to make themselves feel powerful. People use language to make themselves feel important. We've got this problem where people are listening to respond, not listening to understand. And you know, yes, I loved it. I heard you say that as well. It was so powerful. I see it every day. I honestly, and it's so funny. I I laugh every now and then. We get these things, you know. um, Heap eated is the new one, you know. So when you're sitting on a panel or you're in a meeting and you say something as a woman, and then a bloke repeats it, and everyone listens to the bloke, but no one heard you say it because he he heated you. Yes, I was sat on a panel. It's a with a load of um, fascinating phenomenon, isn't it? So funny. I do quite a lot of speaking (laughs) work and panels and stuff. And, you know, I feel like I've got a good voice for theatre. I enunciate well. I'm from Shakespeare's County. I can use the English language reasonably well. I'd suggest I'm reasonably good at getting my, my message across. I'm always learning, always trying to improve. And I said something about, you know, artificial intelligence. You know, it's been around since, you know, the 1950s, 1960s. La, 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 la. Off we go. The guy sitting next to me was like, yeah, artificial intelligence was invented in 1956 in Dartmouth College. And I'm like, I think I just said that, didn't I? I think I just said that. Oh, there's an echo. These men are echoes. Echoes. What happened to It's classic. Yesterday, my daughter asked me for some assistance. Sorry, I just got so taken over by this. We've just created a word, hechoing, as in a a he echo. (laughs) Sorry, go on, tell us your story. It's so sorry, I've just written that down. I'm going to tweet that. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I'm laughing. I'm crossing my legs laughing. What I I was about to say was, yes, it was fascinating yesterday because my daughter had written this essay and she wanted me to help her with some editing. And and what what became very clear was what she's learning at school. She's this just gorgeous girl. She's a real communicator. But when she writes, she just uses all these big words. And I say, Lily, why are you using those words when you can say something in a far simpler way? You know, communication's about you know, uh, ha- people wanting to listen to what you're saying and you just, it just needs to be clear. It needs to be simple. You know, just dumb it down, darling. It doesn't need to be big, fancy words. And and I feel like I wonder if the education system is also one of those, you know, stakeholders in making things far more complex than or, or complicated than it needs I to be. I do agree with your daughter, though, that there are some beautiful words in the English language that if we don't continue to use them we're going to lose them and the idea that we can reduce our language into text speak and even people now using emoticons it's a different kind of language to the you know the the beautiful you know potential prose or written english language i think you have to tailor your message to your audience of course yeah. to your so, audience and, and, that is true yeah. so you know the emoticons are the twitter <laughs> it's audience so funny. people are literally writing entire stories just with emoticons there was a TED talk about it. I anyway, listen, I digress. I digress. <laughs> I like the sound of your daughter. You can tell her I think that she's got. A, a, it's always good to know long, big, beautiful words. The English language is so okay. beautiful. I'll yeah. tell her that. She'll be very <laughs> pleased about that. Listen, so tell us about your work with drones and what led you to this kind of tech. I was listening to you explain the application you've got. There's so many different kinds of applications. So tell us a little bit about that. So, I mean, I um, did a PhD in environmental science and and looking at spatial ecology. And what spatial ecology means is literally the ecology of how things interact across space. So how things will compete with each other, you know, if they interact with each other, how things grow together in the forest, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But I was also looking at it from the microbes in the soil and how they competed with each other inside the soil and how – 
they were involved in nutrient transfer. And so I learned a lot about geographical information systems. And, you know, geospatial data is actually a growing field. If people were looking at um, something to get trained up in, geospatial data analysis is something that's a growing need for us, especially um, nationally. And you've got to remember, Australia's got a good history of geospatial data as well. We created Google Maps you know, Australian company, Google oh, Maps. Right. Yep, when they bought it, it was an Australian um, startup. Um, and so I, um, I always like the idea of being able to sample Mother Nature without creating what we call sampling bias. And so if you, for example, go to walk down onto a beach to count turtle tracks and you come across turtles, you are interacting with those animals. You're doing something called non-predatory predation, which means you're having a negative effect on that animal, even though you're not eating them. Um, and so interacting with mother nature damages it, right? It causes stress in animals. It changes their patterns of behavior. If anyone's ever been tempted to get involved with those dolphin feeding things, just remember that those dolphins are now all permanently damaged by the fact that humans have been feeding them fish and um, they're, they're changing how they work now and they're working a lot with conservationists and they're not taking on any new dolphins because the ones they've got now, they've, they've broken. You can't put them back in the wild. Um, and so they know that they've done this permanent damage to them now. But of course, 10, 15 years ago, we didn't know that yeah. about dolphin behavior. Um, so you just don't want to mm. interact. And so we were, I was a contract manager for a large um, environmental monitoring program in Western Australia. And we were in charge of about 35, 40 different scopes. And when I looked at all of these different scopes and how they were coming in, I was like, that's the same geospatial data as that. It's just that it's looking through what we call an ecological window that's slightly different. So ecological windows are all about how and when animals interact, and so therefore you can measure them. So, for example, an ecological window for turtle nesting is when the turtle crawls up onto the beach and lays her nest and then crawls back into the ocean. That's the ecological window that you're wanting to look at. How do you measure that? by looking at the turtle tracks, by seeing whether or not there's nests there. Um, and so that's how you manage that. But it's still in the same space and time as if you're driving along that beach, taking measurements of um, erosion or weeds or intertidal marine species or rocky outcrops or you know anything like that. You're still physically covering the same space. You're just looking at it through a different keyhole. And so how do we have a technology that will allow us to capture really high res like we're talking centimetre or half a centimetre resolution pixel photography, so really close-up photography, but from far enough away that you're not interacting with it. Well, traditionally, we've always used satellites. We've had a problem in that we've got a tropical convergence zone. Cloud gets in the way, and we don't have access to the military satellites that see through cloud. We only have regular satellite access, um, and it only passes over at certain times of day, and it's metres and metres of resolution. It's not centimetres of resolution unless you've got big bucks. And in fact, some of the new satellites coming online now are pretty pretty fancy, but we didn't have those five, six, seven years ago. Um, and then you have manned aircraft, which you have to put people in and you have to fly them a few hundred kilometers offshore over shark infested and Irukandji infested water and croc infested waters, flying low level, trying to capture mm. information. You're flying too fast for the camera to catch up. So it's blurry or it's not quite the resolution that you want. So then drones. Are an opportunity here. The drones that we were originally flying in 2013 are reconnaissance aircraft, Australian company again, um, and they were being used by the US military in Afghanistan to look for insurgents and to look for behavior and patterns of insurgents putting IED devices around. They can capture very high res information and they can fly for 20 hours. So you go, right, okay, I'm not in the military, but what you've got there for me is a long range, long endurance satellite enabled so it can go hundreds of kilometers it can go thousands of kilometers away from where you launch it and it's collecting photography that's at such a high resolution that i'm able to actually see inside that ecological window 
And I was like, bang, mm. there is our Goldilocks zone. It's just right. It's just able to fly long enough. It's able to fly low enough. It's big enough so the animals don't interact with it. They don't think that it's an eagle or anything like that. It's too big for that. It's not the right color for that. It doesn't make the right noise for that. Um, it's, you know, reasonably silent. We were flying across seabirds. They didn't even notice us, you know. So, um, you know, and it's flying fast enough that it's gone before anyone even realizes it's there. Um, it's stealthy in that way. It's not stealth, but it's stealthy. And it's, it's high enough, low enough, fast enough, slow enough. And I was just like, this could actually be kind of perfect. And the first thing I, I did was I went, well, other people have to be doing this right. You know, other people have to have done this. Yeah, I'm thinking about it now, thinking it must have been a magical, it was that a, must have been a Goldilocks day. kind of, oh, my gosh, if this could work, we have something here. Um, and so we set about, it took us nine months to get all of the business paperwork sorted, basically. Um, and to get all of the airspace approvals and to know how we were going to fly it, where we were going to fly it, to fit inside everybody's air safety. The, the number one priority is to do it safely or to not do it at all. If this wasn't going to be able to be done, knowing that we would guarantee, guarantee as much as we could, that we weren't going to interact with another helicopter or a plane, then I wasn't signing off on it. Well, my bosses wouldn't sign off on it. No one would have signed off on it. The company wouldn't, wouldn't have signed off on it. Mm. We all had this wonderful health and safety mantra, which was you do it safely or you don't do it at all. And when you're trying something new for the first yeah. time, you really check everything that could possibly go wrong. So it took us nine months to get all the paperwork sorted for a seven-day mission. Um, and um, when we flew it, the first day there were some teething issues and that's all fine. This all sort of, sort of happens. We were like, no, it's all good. It's all good. The second day we flew it and we got some of the imagery back and I sat there at my desk and I cried. I cried. I'd never seen anything like it. I, I was just like, it works. It absolutely works. And when you, when you looked at around the world, who else was doing it? Nobody was doing it. Nobody was doing it for a number of reasons that I understand now. I didn't understand at the time. And so at the time I got very frustrated thinking, look, I'm not that special. You know, I've got a team around me that know X, know Y, know A, B and C. We've, I've managed to choreograph this team. This isn't just my baby. It was a team effort like all things are. Um, and, yeah. and I was yeah. like, how is it that we have managed to come to this place and nobody else has? And this technology has been around for 10 years already. I was beside myself. I was like, how are we so far ahead of all of these so-called experts, of all of these so-called universities, of all of these so-called businesses, of all of these so-called aerospace companies? How is it that we've identified this? And it was just, a, yeah, it was a perfect Goldilocks moment. Um, and so that then led me to create um, a business line for my company um, for um, Unmanned Aerial Systems. Um, and so that's when I was relocated yeah. nationally over to Brisbane because most of our um, clients were East Coast. Um, and so... We relocated right. and Western Australia started slowing down. So we relocated me to Brisbane to set up the national business line. And that's when the Telstra Awards came and all that kind of stuff sort of came. But um, the, the footage, yeah. uh, you know, we can't publish it yet. I'm talking to the company to see if we can try and publish and release some of it. I was able to present it when I still worked yeah. at that company, but now I don't work there anymore. I, I can't. But David Attenborough would have been floored with it. We had... We had imagery of um, an oceanic manta ray that when I showed it to an academic in, in Western Australia, he said, Kath, we've not seen one of those up there for 20 years, nearly 15, 20 years. He said, because oh, we didn't even know they were gosh. still around because they don't come near humans. And the traditional method is in a plane, you're making a lot of noise in a um, rig, you're making a lot of noise um, on a boat, you're making a lot of noise and they just don't like humans. They won't come near you. So we have this beautiful picture, which I don't have a copy of anymore. Sorry. I mean, you're working on these initiatives, you know, which really are 
recording marine life that haven't you know hasn't happened for many many years but also I was really really interested in that kind of journey as well and in your perspective on how drones can assist in humanitarian aid particularly in emergency situations so for me when I've been watching some of the work you've been doing it feels like it's constantly oh, evolving every day is something different like last night on the news there was this thing about a drone potentially flying contraband into a prison here in Australia I don't know if you saw that. Drones are literally making the headlines wow, nearly no, every day, probably for the wrong reasons, though. Um, you know, there's a lot of really good drone work going on, but they, you know, oh, we, we measured a turtle nest today. is isn't quite the same as someone flew contraband into a prison, you know, so it's like... Um, yeah, but you would, I mean, I know that you've been talking with, for instance, Julie Bishop and others about, you know, the humanitarian efforts that you can... Um, you know, collaborate oh, on using doing, drone yeah, the technology. Australian government is doing stuff. Australians are ahead of everybody else again with this tech. We were the first to commercialise it in 2002. And so we've had this wonderful mm. um, incubation going on. We've got companies coming here, including Project Wing, who's part of Google. Oh, Alphabet as they are. I'm never that Alphabet Google, who's what company always freaks me out. Anyway, so Project yeah. Wing, who are yeah. a sister company to Google, part of Alphabet Group, um, are trialling delivery of right. Guzman and Gomez burritos in Canberra. Um, we've got Uber wanting to have flying drones delivering things in Sydney by 2023. They're already applying for their approvals. They're already working with CASA to do the trials. In Queensland, we are the first state to have a, a statewide strategy drone paper that the Premier actually released to the public at the opening session of the World of Drones Congress back in August. Drones um, Congress. But okay. uh, the DFAT team and Julie Bishop's work in, and the Innovation Exchange team in, in Canberra, we had something called the Pacific Humanitarian Challenge. And you can go online and you can see all the, all the groups that won there. And one of them was a drone company that has the, a very, very cheap autopilot at $5 that can do quick and dirty, great, you know, what's been eroded, what roads are open, kind of build them from a pool noodle kind of drones, which are great, called, um, I think they're called Firetail. And then there's also um, a group called... Uh, PAC did, which was the open data platform. And so both of those people were two of the five winners of the money from the Pacific Humanitarian Challenge. So as a country, we are also, in terms of our aid work, actually funding and developing appropriate solutions to how you actually capture and manage data after an event. We're also, I believe, as part of our education programs across the Pacific, training up the GIS teams inside local governments across the Pacific Islands, for example, so they can have their own drone squadrons, so they can have their own drone teams. So when the cyclone goes over, they put the drone up and measure the airport and tell you before the C-130s have even left Brisbane whether or not you're going to be able to land at that airport. They would have been brilliant during Cyclone Pam. They weren't in position then. They were great during the Nepalese earthquake, you know, going out to villages where people were writing messages in the mud about how many were injured, dead, alive, you know, what they needed for supplies, um, you know, and getting that information back mm. really quickly. We even used them in Queensland during Cyclone Debbie. The first people to put drones up were actually the insurance companies. I think Suncorp were the first one to put them up. Really? Yeah. Um, and using local teams. So using your local drone um, um operators which is great so you're using local businesses immediately after an event to get you that information and what were they capturing what were they capturing when they were up there for instance well there in they'd be event. looking for example at building damage they'd be looking at road damage um, and they're just looking at you know how things generally are um, they'll have probably have specific clients that they might be looking at if they've got large farms or large areas there where they've got large clients with large insurance cover for example um, they'll be getting up and having a look down in Victoria we have drones now as part of an environmental monitoring platform um, and what they have there is the opportunity in terms of fire management and fire prevention as well as actually backburn 
burning. You can use drones to do back burning. You can also use drones overnight when you can't have manned wow. aircraft in the air looking at how fires are behaving. So when your crews are ready to go first thing in the morning, um, you, you have the drones up overnight getting you real-time information about these fires. You plug that real-time information into the beautiful models that we have in this country, some great bushfire modelers out of some of our universities here. And so when the people are ready to launch in the morning, they've got live data as to how that fire is behaving so they can go and hit it hard first thing in the morning. So it's, yeah, it's, it's brilliant for so many different things in, in Australia. And um, I really would like people to recognize that we yeah. are using it for some pretty cool stuff. It's not just about delivering pizzas. Well, you say drones, okay. You say drones will be prevalent in every single part mm. of our economy in the next yeah, few years. they already years. are. I mean, you call it the global drone economy. What, what do you mean by that? I mean, obviously, you just talked about pizzas, but... You know, you talk about having a personal mm. drone. Well, driverless vehicles will eventually have drone um, attachments that you stick on the roof and you fly over traffic. Google Maps, for example, are already managing upwards. So it's not just about the roads anymore. It's about three metres above that, three metres above that, and three metres above that. We're going to have 3D maps. We're going to be operating in 3D. We're not going to be operating just on roads anymore. And so drones, you've got to remember, though, are not just the flying G, little flying things. They're, they are the crawling things, the swimming things, the driverless vehicles, any kind of robotics. You've got window cleaning drones. You've got um, drones now that spray paint, so you can have artist drones. You've got your driverless vehicle type things, your driverless trucks. We've already got the driverless trucks on pretty much mine sites in the Pilbara that have hardly any humans on them at all. Now, they also have drones on there now doing monitoring and stockpile evaluations, mm. for example. So, you know, when people say all these big mines are going to create thousands of jobs, I actually really query that because all the mine miners that I know are really roboticizing their operations, primarily for health and safety. Oh, yeah, God, yeah. for health and safety. There is no, no work. There's more, there's more jobs right now in renewables and agriculture and tourism. So why would you sacrifice those things? Yeah. Sorry, anyway, we, can, we could go on to a rant about that one. but um, We could but, digress um, there. But obviously in a time when people have a real fear about the future of work, I'd be interested to know what kind of jobs or skills are associated with drones so, for the future. Yeah. I mean, they'd be very – they'd be listening to this thinking, oh, that's interesting. I wonder yeah, if I should it, right. think about working well, with drones. Remember that drones are a platform technology that are part of the Internet of Things. So my number one recommendation to anybody who's thinking about future-proofing their job right now is to get into cyber. Cyber is massive. We have yeah, 21 right. million cyber attacks globally on a quiet Tuesday. Cyber attacks are going to be the thing that are the future of war. This is something that 21 million a day globally. You can actually go online and Google how many current cyber attacks are there and these maps that pop up and show you where they're coming from and attacking. It's really interesting. Australia oh gets gosh. attacked every now and then. We had our Wi-Fi cracking issue that we had uh, last week. And you know what? Our banks, you know, people might bash the banks, but you know what? Our banks do an incredibly good job of keeping us all very safe. Westpac, I know, um, from a personal yes. um, relationship, um, being that Westpac hosts the ANU Industry Advisory Panel. And so one of the things the ANU is now doing is setting up a cyber institute. Mm. So if you want to have guaranteed work, yeah, very smart. cyber is the way to do it. You can do a 12-week course and be guaranteed a job at the end of it. You don't have to be in science. You can be in arts, languages, psychology, um, you can be in chemistry, physics, astrophysics, whatever. You you don't need to be in a I am a software coder kind of person to get into cyber. They actually, psychologists are actually in demand in the cyber world because cyber warfare is yeah, more psychology. Yeah, that doesn't surprise yeah. me. So, um, yeah, being a psychotherapist <laughs> Yeah, well, myself, you should get yeah. into cyber. Honestly, uh, not people, surprised. Yeah, I'll, go, I'll just, just ditch yeah. the kids, 
Head up to I think you'll be able to take a few take, take, three, take three months into Canberra. Apparently, it's one of the best places in the world to visit, according to that thing this week that came out on the news. Fabulous. I like the galleries up there, too. I can see myself doing that. There's some gorgeous people I can introduce you to in Canberra that are really cool and funky at ANU. <laughs> yes. ANU is awesome. I'm there, mate. I'm Honestly, there. we've got I'm Brian there. Schmidt. I don't think people realise who Brian Schmidt is. We've got Brian Schmidt. No... No, he's the, vice, he's the boss at the ANU. He's in charge of the ANU. And he has a Nobel Prize in astrophysics. Brian Schmidt's work was the work that showed us that the universe was still expanding. This oh, man wow. also grows Pinot Noir. He is an absolute gem. Ooh. And he's, we are so lucky to have him in Australia. And I don't think we really realise, and I, I don't know why, is it a tall poppy thing again? I don't know that we really, I don't know that we really realise the strength of what we have there. Do you think there's been, I think there might be a little bit too much viewing of MasterChef mm, yeah, and enough, Survivor, Q&A, Catherine. Too much MasterChef. Um, maybe. Maybe. It's just a little, it's a little bugbear. Well, Catalyst is coming back in a good way. We've got Alan so Duffy listen, now doing Catalyst. Yeah, He's just flown off to the States for two weeks to record a load of astrophysics stuff and space stuff. So that'll be some really interesting work coming through ABC oh, Catalyst. You so, you know, the ABC is still punching above its weight in terms of its programming and its science programming. So um, they had um, oh, no, some great work fabulous. on Yeah, Catalyst is always worth worth a watch. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, so anyway, cyber is one thing attached to drones because drones can get hacked and they can be used to hack things. And then you've got to look at other things like data management. So drone data managers are going to be a job. Um, international drone law is going to be a thing. Every new technology that comes out has an ecosystem built around it. Needs so you need lawyers. You need lawyers. Yeah. People think, oh, we can have law- lawyer robots. No, you'll have lawyer robots that deal with the really simple, where do I get this divorce paper? How do I apply this? How do I follow this? That's the basic robotic kind of law that no one wants to do anyway. And artificial intelligence will be great mm. at reading lots and lots of documents, but they're not very good at holding your hand when you're in trouble and you're wanting to relate to a human being. Yeah, when you're going yeah, and you want that human being to understand yeah, and relate and respect you and therefore represent you best. A robot is never going to do that. Um, otherwise, I think cyber is definitely one, data is another. If there was, just yeah. on, that, on that, if there was one problem in the world that you feel drone tech could help with where would you want to apply it where it's not being oh, applied today well, Lisa, if you'd asked me this a few months ago i'd have said you know i was talking to the united nations world food program about different kinds of drones you can use to deliver food aid into syria but um after watching the horrific tragedy that still haunts me actually um of grenfell tower in london um i was i was watching that and thinking oh we, God, that was really we cool have oh my hair's all just stood up as well i can't i can't deal with what happened at grenfell tower i i actually can't process it and I, I think a lot of us have probably just not thought about it or just watched it as a headline or something happened in london people were facebook living cries for help from the 23rd floor and then died oh a woman who's as pregnant as i am managed to get out of the 17th floor her daughter had cyanide poisoning she lost her baby boy and you know the human tragedy oh god the people the suffering and how they died and when you think about it my god you know september the 11th was 2001 that was 16 nearly 17 years Mm. ago now and we still do not have a method in which we can rescue people from tall buildings from high-rise buildings for me now it's insane really isn't it we have heavy lifting drones that can carry 70 80 100 kgs that can pick up a human being 
We've got um, the jetpack ambulance guy who's great in New Zealand, who's bringing his jetpack ambulance over to trial in Australia. Um, he flies around on this thing and it's an ambulance. And so I'm thinking, why do we not have rescue drone capability? Why do we not have that? Why do we not have a pod that people can use to escape out of their building? You know, why do we, you know, in some countries they have like flying fox wire systems for you to evacuate down the side of the building. Um, but we, you know, yeah. Grenfell Tower was a massive surprise. It's no crazy. one expected what happened at Grenfell Tower. And the thing that's most disturbing for me is that we seem to have stopped talking about it. And I think we need to maybe start re-talking about it because if anyone listening to this lives above the 12th floor in a high-rise building, you really, really, really need to see whether or not your cladding passed that fireproofing test. And I know that in Brisbane, most of mm -hmm. our buildings, and I say most, I'd say statistically significantly, test. nearly all of our buildings do not pass that cladding mm. fire test. Now, when they tested the Princess Alexandria Hospital, it passed the first time and it failed the second time. So it, they have to replace the entire mm. cladding on that hospital. And so they should. They need to make sure that this has been done correctly. And so for me, drones really in terms of rescuing people, and I'd never have thought in a million years I'd ever answer this question with this we need to have drones that rescue people from mm. high-rise buildings. Like, Mind you, I'm thinking, you know, from a foresight perspective, if I started backcasting, I can already see that that's going to be one of your most memorable initiatives with drone tech, Catherine. I can see you well, doing yeah, something but I'm like already, that. I'm already talking with fire and rescue like and this. ambulance and stuff like that. The thing that frustrates me most about yeah. um, this is that we have the technology on the technology side and it all sits there. We've got this thing called an academic lag phase, right? So all of the R&D in our universities, people have to publish it before they do anything with it. We try and get this idea of industry academic partnerships so that we try and speed up the commercialization yeah. of some of the output. But it's still under confidentiality. It's still investor protected. It's still all of these different protectionist mechanisms. I'm just like, can we just open source this stuff? Can we just open source it? Like, let's yeah. put it out there to the crowd brain. Yeah. Let's put it out there to everybody who might be thinking about this, you know, and, and instead of thinking about how much return can I make for my shareholder, let's think about how many lives we can save next year. Right. Like, you know. Yeah. Or how many publications we can, uh, we can post out there. It's more about, yeah, what can we do to Honestly, make the world a better I, I place? I retweeted Annie Parker, who um, is the CEO of Fishburners, and she's an awesome woman. She's um, one of the AFR bosses. Um, Game, game. Uh, what is it? No, what? One of the leaders. I was one of the game changers this year. She's one of the leaders for this year. And let me just get this tweet up for you. And it was all about, um, you know, how we actually value things. So universities, for example, terms of reference. It's all about publications. But that prop that actually means it's a huge problem because um, women, for example, when you go on and have children, you go away and you don't publish for a while. It means that you drop in the rankings. Um, and um, so Annie Parker here, who I tweeted this morning. Um, instead of a rich list measured by cash, can we have one measured by positive impact? And I'm like, uh, yeah, please, oh, absolutely. can we organise this, Annie? <laughs> so if you're listening, Annie, <laughs> can we get something started? Because well, obviously uh, nobody else just, did. Um, Who cares about a rich list? Who cares? Who, since when did we uh, cover it? You can't take it with you. Impact list is what I want to see. Capitalist well, Society, Catherine. Capitalist Society. So listen, I should say I'm Lizzie Metton. This is People My Dog Would Like. I'm talking with Dr. Catherine Ball, who's founder and CEO of a number of companies. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but I just wanted to remind people of who who I was listening to. But yes, absolutely. You know, why do we have these insane lists when in fact what you want is humanitarian exactly. impact, don't you? 
You want to know what is going to make society exactly better. right. And the thing is, you can make money and do good stuff at the same time. And I would actually probably yeah, yeah bridge inequality. You know, raise poverty. There's a wonderful businesswoman called Kathy Reed here in Australia who's now created a billion dollar business. She's had a billion dollars of investment. She's the largest. She's got this largest um, cancer care facility in Australia. They're expanding globally. They support Kathy Reed supports pretty much every single philanthropic thing you can possibly think of. When you look at how involved she is, she's mm. a personal uh, friend and mentor of mine as well. She has time, despite the fact that she's so busy. She has time for everybody mm. who asks her for information or help. Mm. Um, and she's a smart cookie. And, and the way she works is the way I want to work. I want to have that balance of, um, you know, philanthropy, humanitarian, um, you know, the fact that various different um, charities that they've created through their businesses. Um, and she's having a really beautiful life. And her Instagram is something to behold. You know, she travels an awful lot, but she does good stuff, you know, mm. as she goes. And I'm like, this spends a lot of exactly, time giving but, back. But giving back through being a successful business person. This isn't about having to, um, you know, have a, oh, I'll just create a little not-for-profit on the side to make me feel good about myself. It's about she lives her values. She wants to live this epic life. And I'm like, that, that is the thing that needs to be celebrated. Not this, oh, I managed to sell this much plastic into somewhere, you know, and made so many millions selling clothes or so many millions selling this, that and the other. You know, I changed something or I grew something or I created something and people are better off because of it and the environment is better off for it. And yeah. um, that's that's where I think um, capitalism, I think, is moving into social capitalism in that people no longer just care about the dollar. Yeah, definitely. There's certainly some incentivizations that are being put through for yeah, mm. social enterprises as well, which is mm. a good thing to see. So listen, I expect you've had some aha moments in your life. Which of these has been the most oh, life-changing gosh. for you? Oh, you know what? Sometimes the rejections are actually the best gifts, eh? I often... Um, yeah, they right. say feedback is a gift. Feedback's always a good gift. Sometimes, you know, when you fall short or you or you don't realize what you're doing and you make a mistake, I think sometimes recognizing that you are falli- fallible and you're able to make mistakes, but you're able to, so what? I mean, the ability to say so what is something I've only really started cracking into in my late 30s. I look back at myself as a younger woman and I really wish I could just give myself some so what attitude. You know, I, I overthink things anyway. People know that I'm mm. an overthinker. I worry about things. Um, and I try to do less of that and I try to channel that energy into more of doing things. Um, money I've never had a lot of, you know, grew up in a very humble circumstance, single parent family. Um, thank God there was social support in the UK to keep us in school uniforms and shoes. Yeah. Um, we were never in social housing, yeah. but we were not far away from it. Um, if my mum hadn't got her law degree as a mature student, mm. we would have been in social housing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think that um, having a good work ethic um, has been um, a thing that I've inherited from my mother. In terms of aha moments, for me, sometimes they're quite slow burning. I'll sit there. Do you know what? This is going to sound really sad. Sometimes when my husband and I have been food shopping and I go to the fridge to get something out of the fridge and I look at a fridge full of beautiful, gorgeous, fresh fruit and veggies and, you know, beautiful produce from, you know, I just sit, I actually look at it and I go, I really love looking at this fridge when it's full of beautiful food. I, I, I'm like, I feel like a success. Oh, it's, gratitude yeah, is yeah, what I'm hearing. Gratitude. gratitude. Without wanting to go all on and everything on it. The idea that um, sometimes I'll um, 
I'll sit and, and I'll be working somewhere or talking to someone or I've met someone or even, you know, meeting like Brian Schmidt. I'm a completely fangirl about Brian Schmidt. But he doesn't know that, but he might listen to this and then he'll know it mm. now. But, you know, and it, it's people <laughs> like that. And I just go, I, I just had, you know, he took me into the chairman's lounge in Sydney once when we were flying back at the same time after a meeting. And I was like, after he had to get his flight before I had to get mine, I sat there and I was like, I just had um, salt and pepper squid with the guy that figured out the universe is constantly expanding. <laughs> it's like, who the hell am I? <laughs> like, who the hell am I to be sat here having experienced that? And I, it, it took me a moment. And at the time I was um, starting to get ready to get pregnant, so I wasn't drinking, but I could have done with a gin at that point, hey. But um, it was, um, I was just yeah. like, wow, wow. So, I mean, again, Kathy Reed again, meeting people who um, – who are absolutely inspirational to me are the biggest aha moments. But also, you know, being very humbled. I have, you know, sometimes those young women that will work with me or approach me or will be talking to me and they're like, oh, Catherine, I'm really nervous to talk to you. And I'm like, why are you nervous to talk to me? And I'm like, because you're you. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm nothing. Like, you don't need to be nervous about talking to me. And sometimes I'm like, do I answer that correctly? Do I sound arrogant when I answer that like that? But I honestly don't understand why someone would feel nervous to approach me and talk to me about something. And they obviously are feeling about me the way I feel about Brian yeah. and Kathy And so yeah. it's like, yeah. um, that's been, that that's been a really, yeah. I don't know how to... So who are the people in your life who you've had a who are those people in your life who you feel have had a pivotal impact on you? Oh my mother. You? First of all. I mean obviously there's been some mm. amazing people. Your yeah, my mom and her work ethic and the fact that she always saw something in me and never was afraid of it, never suppressed it. Um, you know, I had some great teachers through my time. Mm. Liz Charlesworth's probably um, one of my favorite teachers ever. She ran the debating society when I was the only girl on the debating society. I went to a co-ed state school in the UK. Um, and, um, you know, she and I are in, yeah. <laughs> we're in touch through Facebook now, which is, which is quite wonderful. Um, and um, I like Facebook for that. Yeah. You can keep a hold of the people you want to. The problem is you've just got to make sure you get rid of the ones that you don't, right? So, um, <laughs> um yeah, 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 yeah. You've got to work with You know, I don't want people will say, "Oh, women always thank their husbands, or whatever." Do you know what? I couldn't do what I do without my husband. My husband is the yin to my yang, or the yang mm. to my yin, which way it is. Um, he and I balance each other out so well that you would have not thought that it would have ever worked. He's an arty, creative jovial happy laid-back Aussie I'm this highly strung academic working class hero type <laughs> chip on shoulder um, Sorry. Um, type, you know very mm, type mm. a performance you know business 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 type person and, and um, he and I just balance each other out you don't sound like you've got a chip really? on your shoulder Catherine I do get frustrated if I'm honest I have a working no. class chip to a certain extent in that so what I think you might I think you might have a fire in your belly about things, but you don't come across as someone that's got well, a chip on Well, when I say a working-class chip, what I mean is sometimes when you are stood amongst people who've only ever known wealth and they say or do something and they make you feel incredibly mm. poor economically, I get very mm. – uh, what's, what's the best way of putting this? I will destroy them verbally with my knowledge um, in order to uh, balance that back out again. <laughs> 
use your brain and my brand and my point of view and I will not back down. And um, this is why I really care about social mobility. And one of the biggest things that I worry about in terms of this fourth industrial revolution and the new digital future is that we have something here in Australia called the digital divide and it's just going to get worse. So not all kids have access to iPads, iPhones. If I said to some kids that I know working with, you know, I do work with the Smith family and I do work, you know, up in, in various rural and remote and regional parts mm. of Australia. And if I said to them, you should, you should get a job in cybersecurity, they'd look at me like I was talking a foreign language. It'd just be so far away from what they know. And that is where we're going to fall over as a country. We have to make sure that every single Australian feels absolutely empowered and enabled by this technology. And so socioeconomic lines... Yeah. And that yeah. there is equal opportunity because it just it does. does not and exist you know what? at the moment. We, we shouldn't be afraid to acknowledge that. I think if you can have the spine to acknowledge that there's a problem, you're already halfway there to fixing it. And so you can, yeah, you you can recognize do something, it, about, do something about, it. about it. And the thing is, you know, change is very easy. You just have to instigate it. One thing, just one thing mm. to mm. do is actually instigate So what scares you the most thing? Have you, you know, have you ever been in dire straits? Oh, I mean, financially for me, 2016 was really very hard. We were back onto the rice and beans. When you're first establishing yourself as a startup, all you're doing is bootstrapping. All the money is going straight back into the businesses. And so you're paying rent and you're eating basic Mm. food. um, And, you know, we were thinking, oh, we'll try... Beans and rice, seriously, beans and I like beans and rice. So you cook it well enough. It tastes pretty nice. If you know how to cook, and my husband's a great cook. (laughs) Well, the majority of the world's population do not have access to fancy restaurants yet. It's, it's carbohydrates and protein, and, and that's what they go for. Um, and so we're lucky that we have full bellies. You know, we forget that the majority of people on this planet do not have full bellies. We live in a very, very, very um, lucky mm. part of the world. Um, so biggest thing for me has always been, can I keep my head above water financially? Um, and now this year we're, we're making it, we're cracking it, and it looks like everything's going to be a raging success. But last year it did not look like that. Last year I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was trying to figure out which businesses were going to work. We had eight open at one point. We closed three that weren't working. We were looking – I was burning out. I, I look at the end of um, 2016 and I was absolutely cooked, psychologically burnt out, done, finished. Um, and Because – there's not everybody mm. that does this, and there's a reason why not everybody does this break away and do things on your own is because it's really hard work and it takes everything. Mm. It takes everything. It affects all of your relationships um, and it, it's 24 uh, 7, mm. live it, breathe it. I can't remember the last time I had a weekend, let's put it that way. So, yeah, I mean, you do accomplish a lot. I was burnt <laughs> out just reading your CV, it was, you know. Just well, reading well, it. Well, made now me I'm being tired, like, you know, Kat. eight and a half months pregnant. I'm actually being physically slowed down, but not mentally <laughs> slowed down. I know. Really How great. are you feeling? Oh. How are you feeling? You yeah. don't have long to go. No, no, have I haven't. And it's, I'm on this terrible treadmill of you're in the obstetrician's high risk pathway because I turned 38 in August. So I've got all of these things thrown, all these horror stories yeah. and things. Oh, God. I love those stats. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, I, I don't know stats. how it's going to go. Anyway, as long as he's alive and I'm alive at the end of it, that's all that matters. I think this is another thing. Women do not do each other a good service when we slag each other off and have a go at each other's way of giving birth. I'm sorry. If you don't, it's not a competition. Complete. We need to look after each other here. If women choose, you know, if they're neoliberal feminists and they choose to have a C-section, all power to them. If they have to have an emergency C-section, all power to them. If they manage to give birth in three hours and sneeze the kid out, well done, honey, for your fast cervical dilation. It's all power to all women and it's something we should celebrate. Yeah. 
And if they want to not breastfeed, that's fine. No problem. I sometimes say to my mum, can you imagine how much more I could have achieved if I'd been breastfed? And she just laughs at me. She's like, shut up. Yeah, can you imagine? (laughs) This is scary thought. So listen, what do you what what do you feel about women in the workplace now who are listening to you, who have ideas that they sit on? Do you have any messages for them? Please, because one of the things that I'm currently working on is how we actually get women, uh, women with kids, and also fathers with kids, but we know that it's going to be mostly women with kids actually turning their ideas into sideshows and into startups. Mm. And so I'm working with wonderful Peter Ellis. She's the CEO of River City Labs. Wonderful Shelley Dunlop, who works for Inspiring Australia in the Queensland Museum, and we're putting together in Brisbane, and hopefully this, if it works will roll out nationally um, basically a way in which women can take part in a condensed um, incubator um, idea where there's childcare provided on site, two hours a week, lots of online support. Um, mm. Women do not prioritize their business ideas because they don't prioritize themselves inside their family unit. And I understand why I'm starting to learn more about that. And this isn't about slagging anyone off. We're trying to no, it's just incredibly hard exactly. to prioritise when you've got kids and, you know, they so how do you demand create your attention. actually friendly for those women? And so that's the first thing that we're working on. And we're also now looking at women in their 50s and 60s and thinking, right, what's the untapped startups and what's the untapped business ideas that we have in that generation of women that have, you know, done the hard yards and, and lived the, lived the um, you know, the way of work. My mum, when she got pregnant with my sister, my elder sister, she remembers giving up work at seven months pregnant and she cried the entire car ride home because she'd had to quit her job because she was going to have a baby Um, and you know we forget about Mm. the hardships that the women in their 50s and 60s now the 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 sacrifices they made before the equal pay act you know before Mm. and and i know that these these laws are not perfect and they're not working but these women didn't even have those you know some of the divorce laws that have come through in the last 20 years Mm. the fact that marital rape was not even a crime you know 10 20 years ago you know, mm. so these women are the ones that have um, fought the hardest, and they're the ones that I think we've got a lot to learn Endured from. Them. A lot. And so I would love to connect. Mm. And probably incredibly creative thinkers as well, given and see, this all is of the, the knowledge things that, that I don't want us to, to lose. Just because someone retires as a secretary at age 60 does not mean that they do not have a wealth of knowledge and ideas mm. on how they can change things. And so I'm personally mm. trying to work well. Peter and Shelley and I are personally, the three of us, taking a very personal interest and investing a lot of our time and effort at the moment with no financial reward, but physical, lovely, we have good feelings reward, um, in that we've recognized a niche and therefore we're going to do mm. something about it. And that's the one thing that I I'd say to anyone listening to this, if you've got an idea about something, you're already halfway there. You've just got to turn it into something. And that's where you need to reach out. And I'm more than happy if people want to reach out to me through LinkedIn, um, let the, uh, send the information out as we go as to how we're, we're going to be operating those things. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea and I'll put all of that information in the show notes as well on the um, episode links so people can also contact you that way. Now, listen, what uh, a question that I do ask, a couple of questions at the end that I do ask my guests, uh, what daily habit do you think you have or don't have that you feel is contributing to your success at the moment? My biggest daily habit is not to have a daily habit. I think in the, and that sounds really facetious, but each day for me is so different that I don't even know how I could have a daily habit. I suppose the one little thing I do have is my husband always makes me a cup of tea in bed and then he and I have breakfast together. And I was listening. It just sounds so civilized. 
uh, by lovely Mal Kettle. She's got a nice podcast you'd like to listen to as well, I think. And she was interviewing a lady who's a lawyer on the Sunshine Coast. And she said, what's your, what's your daily routine that you do? And she said, my husband and I have always had breakfast together on the veranda. The kids are in a room with the door shut between us. Oh, We're there if they need gorgeous. us. But every morning we have a breakfast together um, um, because she's like, I couldn't do this without him and he couldn't mm, do what he does without me. And we need to always check in and respect the fact that we are a couple working together doing this. So, you know, for people who aren't in relationships, mm. Yeah, exactly. For people who aren't in relationships, that could be making sure you get out and have a coffee at the same cafe every morning and meet friends or go for a walk or or something like that. Just allow yourself. I was doing the river loop uh, before I got pregnant. I was trying to walk along the Brisbane River every morning down to South Bank and back, which was almost 10 Ks. And it was mainly from a fat burning kind of stress reduction kind of exercise. If I could have a daily routine or when this child gets here, I'd like to try and have, and I'm sure all the mothers listening to this are going to wet themselves with laughter. I would love to have um, an opportunity every day to get out and walk along that river with this kid um, for my own health and also psychological health and also to get him out breathing in the healthy bacteria and being in in nature forest bathing effectively alongside the mangroves there around the Brisbane River. So, yeah, I think that is probably my... I think a fantastic habit for a newborn mum is sleeping. So I hope yeah. you get well, this that is the thing. Jeremy and I both work from home from our businesses. We're both working fully flex. I don't have to ask anyone's permission for maternity leave. He doesn't ask anyone's permission for paternity leave. We will work where we want to work, do what we want to do. And that for me Perfect. actually is a huge liberation. I was really worried that I was going to be the stressed out corporate mum that was always missing stuff and always late for stuff and that Jeremy yeah. was going to raise the children because he was the person that was not in a, a, an official job. Um, and now I don't have that. I yeah. can choose where I work, how I work and when I work. And a lot of the ways I've got the businesses established now is that, um, yes, I have to do bits and bobs, but I don't have to do nine to five. I don't have to necessarily be at meetings. I don't have to fly into state. I can video in or Skype in or, you know, this technical liberation that we have, I'm really going to make use of. Um, but also, yes, sleep will be great because Jeremy's um, an yeah, early sleeper and I'm a night owl. So I can imagine us sharing the balance there. Um, reasonably well so I'm feeling very positive it might sound naive but I'm feeling very positive that having two parents at home no not at all very positive bit of walking bit of sleeping bit of loving it sounds pretty good and last question what advice would you give to your 20 year old self if you were sitting down having a cup of tea with her tell her that I love her I think that the biggest issue I had in my 20s was my self-esteem I think um I was treated pretty poorly by a few people, um, both in professional and personal relationships. Um, and I had a pretty rough trot, but things hardest one will pay you back the most. And so I think I would just let her know that, that she's all right, that she doesn't need to worry so much. Um, but again, that would be me undoing my own brain. I'm quite, uh, quite the overthinker and the worrier just to yeah, give her a bit of, um, bit of a boost and tell her she's all right. Yeah, exactly. Give her a give bit her of TLC. Yeah. Oh, that's a wrap. Well, listen, thank you so much thank for your you. time. Oh, you really are so inspiring to not only younger women out there, you're inspiring to me and I'm sure entrepreneurs in general. I'm keen to follow the drone revolution and work with others to see where there's a possibility to, de- to deploy them to assist in the ways you've mentioned today to make the world a better place. Catherine, you simply are amazing like and inspiring all around. <laughs> I'm just so pleased that you've decided thank to call so Australia much. home. And Ara Gunn, female entrepreneur and someone who cares deeply about people and the future of humanity and our fragile earth. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your stories and wisdom with us today. I can't wait to meet I your really dog I really appreciate it. <laughs>
Beautiful. Okay, thanks so much. Have a fabulous day. Thank you.